Our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the beginning, the Word already existed. He was with God, and He was God. He was in the beginning with God. He created everything there is. Nothing exists that He didn't make. Life itself was in Him, and this life gives light to everyone. But although the world was made through Him, the world didn't recognize Him when He came. Even in His own land and among His own people, he was not accepted. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn. This is not a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan. This rebirth comes from God. So the word became human and lived here on earth among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son of the father, the word of the Lord. Christmas is a really exciting time of the year, and I don't know about um, any kids in here. I hope that you guys get excited at Christmas. Um, I know that for me, when I was a kid, I got excited because of the presents that were going to come, right? And I'm hoping that some of you kids, if you did get a present, um, it was more than a lump of coal. It was at least an orange or an apple in your stocking, something really exciting, um, I can still remember a couple of specific gifts I got when I was a kid, like the one year when the very last present hidden behind the tree, almost like in a Christmas story, there was that last present, but it, it wasn't a Red Rider BB gun. It was a Lionel train set. Or a couple years before that, when I pulled out a Terry Bradshaw jersey, and I was so excited. I think I was like five years old. And it wasn't just a jersey. It was shoulder pads and a helmet, too. I mean... I was so excited. I put it on. I'm pretty sure I slept in it that night. I just wanted to get out and play football. I mean, you know, something like a really good present will do that. You just get so excited about life, so excited to play with that gift, just to get out and run around, to use it, to have fun with it. And what's great is I've found that adults do the same thing. Um, As we get older, it's maybe not a toy that is like a football helmet. It's other toys. Some of us get into things like, you know, power drills, um, chainsaws, things that get us really excited, electronics like iPads and Xboxes. Um, (laughs) I think Christmas should be an exciting time of year. It should be the sort of thing that we get excited about, the gifts that are given. But I also don't think that um, we should probably be encouraging loving more stuff, right? We we do that pretty well. We're natural-born materialists. And yet this morning, I don't want us to think that we have to disdain and hate and despise the joys of life. The simple pleasures of life that come with playing with a tool or playing with a toy. I think oftentimes something that we do as Christians is we have too strong of a divide between the sacred and the secular, between the spiritual and the worldly. Now look, God is very clear. There are some things that are sinful, but there's a whole lot of other things that God calls us to embrace and enjoy in this life. Kids, since you guys are in this room, maybe you can help me out with this. Give me a list of jobs that adults have. What are some jobs that adults have? Any? Yes. Shoveling snow. Okay, and ones that, so let's just say um, Mr. Plow. You're a snow, uh, snow plow guy. Okay, what else? What are jobs that you can have? Yeah. 
A professor. Yes, I've heard that somebody might be a professor. What else can you do? Doctor? Anything else? Lawyer? Preacher? I like that one, yeah. Teacher? Parent, right? So, okay, kids, help me out as well. What job that you could have when you grow up will please God the most? Okay, helping God and following what he tells me to do. And I'm going to stop us right there for just a second because I think sometimes parents do this as well. We think that there's holier jobs and less holy jobs. So that if you are um, a teacher or a doctor or a nurse, you're, you're pretty high up. If you're a minister, you're really close to God. But if you, are, um, if you work as a lobbyist or... Oh, sorry. We have a hierarchy that we impose upon the work that's before us that I don't think God does. We think about it, too, in the way that we think about where do you get close to God? Where do you experience God the most? If you want to get close to God, which place should you go? The kitchen, the playground, or church? We naturally think church, but I'm here to tell you that's not true. Because God showed up in places that weren't just churches to say, I'm here. I've come to bring my presence into a stable, into a place where animals feed, into your very lives, wherever you go. You know, in other religions, the essential goal is to escape this world. In Islam, you're looking for the garden of paradise, which is basically the place not here where all of your dreams come true, and every wish shows up like that. In Hinduism, you're trying to break the cycle of reincarnation to get away from this life and escape. In Buddhism, of course, you're trying to reach that place of nirvana, which is detachment from everything this world has. But in Christianity we read that God created the world and said, it is good. And he created human life and said, it is very good. The aim is not to escape this life. God's purpose is not to destroy this creation. It's to redeem it. It's to redeem our lives and restore all things as he intended them. And it all begins at that first Christmas. At Christmas, the one true God entered creation and became one of us. We read it in our passage in John 1, which was written about 100 years possibly, 70 to 100 years after Jesus. And it's a description of Christmas, but in a more philosophical and theological way of talking about it. But we read this. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word is another way of talking about God and his power and action. In the beginning, God the second person of the Trinity, already existed. He was with God, meaning distinct from God, and yet was God, meaning fully God. Right there in that verse 1, we get pre-existence of the Son. He's distinct from the Father, and yet he's one with the Father. This is Christian Trinity. This one true God, then we read in verse 14, became human and lived here on earth among us. God, 
became a baby. He entered creation. He lived here as one of us. And we talk about it in Christianity as God came to save us from our sins, to reveal and show God to us fully. But notice what else the incarnation says. It also tells us this life actually matters. Think about it. Jesus was really human. Jesus really did grow up like you kids. He learned and played and laughed. And like many of you adults, he worked. He was a carpenter. And he ate and he slept. He lived. Think about how many of Jesus' miracles were very this earthly. And and especially the ones that have to do with food, right? Out in the wilderness, 5,000 people are hungry. So what does Jesus do? He takes the... He takes the bread and loaves and uh, the fish and loaves and multiplies them so that people who are hungry get fed. God provides the basic provision of food for hungry people. And in what was Jesus' first miracle? He turns water into wine. That was so unnecessary. But it was lavish and abundant and joyful. It was God saying, enjoy the fullness of this life at this wedding. And what did Jesus do at the Last Supper? He takes bread and he takes wine. And he says, take, eat, this is my body. And every Sunday here, we celebrate the Last Supper. We reenact it. And as we're partaking, the sacrament, it's God saying to us, I'm here with you. I can be tasted like bread can be tasted. Enjoy and experience me just as you can enjoy and experience food. I'm here for you, very present. Jesus didn't come along and say, you want to get close to me? You need to do some transcendental meditation and escape. He said, here I am in bread. Eat. At Christmas, God embraced human life. And so should we. What does that look like? A friend of mine, Dean Miller, he preached here two weeks ago. He, um, he wrote an article recently about how he became a coffee lover. He said, I'm a late-blooming coffee drinker. He didn't used to like coffee, but he went to Paris two years ago with his wife, started sipping espresso and couldn't stop sipping it, and ever since, he's enjoyed coffee. He combined in this article this prayer of John Stotts that says, Heavenly Father, I worship you as the creator and sustainer of the universe. And he said, as he was reflecting on it, he thought, God created everything and sustains everything. And he finishes this article that he wrote when he says, which brings me back to beans and coffee. I will often drink some coffee in the morning as I sit to be with the Lord, to pray, listen, and to read. And as I'm drinking the coffee and praying, I give thanks for God creating and sustaining work on my behalf, which includes watching over all the process from the little beans that make my coffee, the seed and dirt and water and harvest and grind and more water hot this time, to sugar and cream and cup. I'm a coffee bean lover because this God loves me. What does it look like to embrace the life that God created for us? It looks like drinking that cup of coffee you really enjoy and giving praise to the God who made it and gave you the body to enjoy it. I mean, I think oftentimes we, we don't realize that our senses, our feelings, our thoughts, our relationships, our very physical bodies are gifts from God. He made them. And so as we do the things we enjoy... He wants to be present with us and say, 
I love you, and I made you this way. One, one of the things I really enjoy in life is coffee. Another thing I really enjoy is fires in the fireplace. And in order to enjoy fires in the fireplace, you have to enjoy something else that I really like, which is chopping wood. This seems like a very unspiritual thing to do. But I'm here to tell you that chopping wood, the simple act of going out there and working, is using my body and enjoying what God has given me. And I think if we really embrace the creation, if we really embrace the creator who became creation, that what we should do is take advantage of playing, of enjoying life, of shooting baskets, of mowing the grass, of making food, of eating that food, and recognizing God with us, God making us to enjoy these things. And so whether you go to school to study, or you're raising kids, or you're drawing up contracts, or you're taking care of clients, do those things with the fullness of life, not as an end, but as an opportunity to enjoy and experience God's love for you. He made you. He made this earth, and he came to redeem and restore it. Christmas affirms that life matters. Christmas also affirms that the life that we're to live has been turned upside down. I was with a few friends about three weeks ago, and we were talking about Christmas. And the question we asked was, if it's really true, if God really did become that baby, what does it mean? How does it make you feel? And one guy said, it humbles me. It humbles me that God would do this. You know, in every other religion, a prophet comes to tell us how to get close to God or how to escape physical life. But in Christianity, we read that at Christmas, God comes to us to bring us true life. This is an upside-down way of doing it. At Christmas, God's glory enters a stable. We read in verse 14, the word of God became human and lived here on earth among us. And we have seen this, his glory, the glory of the only son of the father. You know, when the Jewish readers of John's gospel were reading this, they picked up two words, lived here and glory. In the Greek, it's shakan and doxa. Shakan comes from the Hebrew word shekinah or tabernacle or dwell. And doxa is doxology, it's glory. Both of these have Hebrew origin, Jewish origin. And basically, when they were reading this, they, they were thinking about God in all of his glory and dwelling. And when you go back to the Old Testament, where does God dwell? Where does he tabernacle? He tabernacles in the tabernacle, in the temple. And God is hidden behind a veil. And when you read about the glory of God in the Old Testament, occasionally you see it like on the fire on the top of Mount Sinai that nobody is allowed to come near. Moses himself is not allowed to see God in all of his glory. Why? Because the glory of God would destroy him. That word glory means weightiness, heaviness. And the, the idea is this. The glory of God would destroy you much like if you took the Washington Monument and you tried to set it on a canoe in the lake. The canoe would sink because the Washington Monument weighs more. 
The glory of God will sink you. You will drown in its presence. You can't go near the glory of God. But at Christmas, the glory of God became huggable, vulnerable, accessible, a baby. The humility of the manger turns our values upside down. Think about it. We're the kind of people who pursue or value success and beauty and power and wealth. These are the things we're after, and these are the sorts of people we want to be around. But Christmas throws that upside down, doesn't it? Jesus didn't come in the fullness of his power. He didn't come in beauty. It didn't look very successful to be born to a virgin peasant girl. There was no wealth in that family. You know, if we'd been there that Christmas, that first Christmas, we'd probably miss out on Jesus in order to get a chance to hang with King Herod. Christmas calls into question all that matters. It flips everything upside down and says, what do you value? What is success? What are you after? Because at Christmas, the creator became the creation. We read in verse 3 and 4, he created everything there is. Nothing exists that he didn't make. Life itself was in him. Our very existence depends on him. You know, we hate being dependent or needy, probably because of pride, I guess. I don't know. But at Christmas, the creator, the creator became both dependent and needy. And yet, the very people sustaining him, his mom and dad, their existence depends on him. You see this most fully on the cross where Jesus is throwing everything upside down. There he is, the creator of the universe, dying. And the very people who accused him, who beat him, who crucified him, who mock him, live because he allows them to. At Christmas, the creator God came to us and became one of us that we might become one with him. John writes in verse 12, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. There's a Christmas book that came out a couple of years ago. It's a children's book called The Song of the Stars, written by Sally Lloyd-Jones, the one who did the Jesus Storybook Bible. And in it, the creation itself is so excited because they hear that the creator has come. And there's this great picture towards the end where the animals come crowding around, the very creation itself. And we read, the animals stood around his bed and the whole earth and all the stars and sky held its breath. And the creation and all the creatures said, the one who made us has come to live with us. Jesus comes to live with us, to tell us this life matters. But the creator enters the creation saying, 
I'm going to turn this life upside down. And Jesus does just that by taking on life and offering his life for us. So what's a good response to Christmas? Receive him. This is God taking on flesh and blood for you. Your creator, your savior, your Lord. And worship him. Live for the glory of the baby born in Bethlehem. Let's pray. Lord God, creator of the stars and night, creator of our lives and sustainer of all things, may we embrace the life you have laid before us and in it see your love for us. And may we receive Jesus, the creator come for us, come to live and die for us, that we might have life to the full. In his name we pray, amen.